Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Remember being a kid, staring up at the stars on a clear night and imagining what it must be like up there. A lot of us at one time or another have dreamed of being an astronaut. But have you ever really pictured it? I mean, really imagined yourself sitting inside the cockpit of a spacecraft preparing for liftoff. And now just one minute to go. Soyuz now on internal power. You're sitting on the launch pad in Kazakhstan inside a Russian Soyuz rocket. And you're strapping yourself in. You've got another astronaut sitting next to you. But really, you're almost on top of each other. It's extremely cramped. Sort of like sitting in the back seat of a Volkswagen Beetle with a couple of other people while wearing a giant snowsuit. And it's hot. Sweat is dripping down your face. You're breathing into your space helmet, which is attached to an oxygen tank. Command for ignition. Oxygen. And the voice in your ear begins to count. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Engine turbo pump at Engines at maximum thrust. Lift off. Within seconds of liftoff, the physical pressure is intense. You're pinned to your seat. It literally feels like there's a boulder on your chest, four times your own body weight. And if that wasn't uncomfortable enough, it also feels like you're choking because your glottis with your vocal cords is pressing against the back of your throat. And as you're blasting off through the atmosphere, just a couple of minutes into the flight, suddenly you feel a jolt. And your tiny spacecraft starts shaking and rocking violently back and forth. An alarm starts blaring. Lights are flashing. You're being tossed around in your seat like a roller coaster. But you still manage to make out the two words on the small screen in front of you. Booster failure. That's exactly what happened to NASA astronaut Nick Haig and Russian cosmonaut Alexei Ovichkinin in October 2018. I'm Jeff Semple, the Europe Bureau Chief for Global News, and this is Russia Rising. On this episode, we'll boldly go where no podcast has gone before. Space, the final frontier. Space is a cold, dark, and dangerous place. But the International Space Station has long been heralded as a bright beacon of geopolitical cooperation, where representatives from 18 countries have lived and worked together, literally trusting each other with their lives. 
And all of them, including Canada and the U.S., rely on Russia to hitch a ride to the stars. Space Force! Space Force! But that relationship is now being tested. So we have the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, the Marines, the Coast Guard. But we have the Air Force. Now we're going to have the Space Force. Space is becoming increasingly weaponized and privatized. And launch. SpaceX's Dragon 9 rocket is expected to make a dozen resupply missions to the International Space Station by 2020, netting Elon Musk's company $1.6 billion under a contract with NASA. But Musk has bigger dreams than just launching cargo. But should we really believe the hype? I mean, are we really on the cusp of a new space race? A superpower in space, how China plans to take a giant leap into exploration. To find out what the future of space travel really looks like, we'll ask the space men and space women who've been there and back. Russians, Americans, and the first Canadian to ever walk in space. Ground control to Major Tom. Whose voice you might recognize. The space industry is in great transition because of improvements in technology right now. But first, back to that Soyuz rocket failure last October. Big breaking story because a rocket booster failed during the launch of the Soyuz spacecraft. The Soyuz rocket booster, the thing that carries the fuel and produces the flames that propel the rocket into space, well, it suddenly stopped working. Now, thankfully, the emergency systems kicked in and detached the faulty rocket booster from the tiny space capsule that was carrying the two astronauts. And at that point, we switched into uh, a different set of procedures, knowing that our mission, uh, prime mission at that point, was to get back down on the ground safe. NASA astronaut Nick Hag said that for a few seconds, they were just floating there, weightless. A fleeting moment to look out the window and realize, you know, looking down at the curvature of the Earth and out into the blackness of space and, and realizing I got close, um, but uh, it wasn't going to be this time. And then gravity took hold and their tiny spacecraft suddenly started barreling back down to Earth at 6,000 kilometers an hour. I asked veteran NASA astronaut Doug Wheelock what that feels like. My first thought was, this must be what it feels like to be in a barrel going over Niagara Falls, only the barrel's on fire. Fortunately, the capsule's parachutes deployed, and the two astronauts drifted safely back down to Earth, not far from their launch pad in Kazakhstan. You can see them inside their capsule. They remained calm, unbelievably, throughout all of this. And we are happy to say they survived, but it was very dramatic. But after that failed launch, the future of the Russian space program was suddenly in question. Russia's space industry has been dealt one of its heaviest blows since the Soviet collapse. And that uncertainty carried potentially huge international consequences because the rest of the world relies on Russia to get to the International Space Station, including Canada. In fact, Canadian astronaut David St. Jacques was next in line. There are risks at every launch, so therefore, yeah, of course we have butterflies, as we say, but what's the solution to that? Just to train more. I met Canada's newest spaceman in Star City, the cosmonaut training facility on the outskirts of Moscow. 
During the Cold War, this place was top secret. It didn't exist on any map. And even today, it's surrounded by dense forest and looks like a sprawling college campus that hasn't had an upgrade or a fresh coat of paint since the 1960s. But inside is a state-of-the-art cosmonaut training facility. Huge halls full of life-size replicas of the space station and the Soyuz rocket. And this is where I found David, training to become Canada's newest representative aboard the International Space Station. Great to meet you. Hello, hello. Yeah, welcome to Star City. Now, in my career as a journalist, I've had the opportunity to meet a number of famous people, politicians, celebrities, and pro athletes. But I can't remember feeling quite as intimidated as I did when I first met David, mostly because I'd looked up his resume beforehand. He's 49 years old, married with three children, and David grew up in Quebec. As a young man, he first pursued a career as an engineer, like his dad. But after a few years, he decided to change course. So he went back to school, and in 1998, he earned a PhD in astrophysics from Cambridge University. A decade later, David changed careers again, this time becoming a doctor and working in a remote Inuit community in Canada's north. And along the way, he also became a pilot and learned five languages. I'm one of those people, I'm not alone, who it just annoys me when I don't understand something. I just can't stand it. His childhood friends, Nicholas Titley and David Gentilet, just smile and shake their heads. You have to be really uh, self-confident to be friends with David Serrag <laughs> because he's always going to be better than you are at almost everything. There, there was no category in the high school yearbook for most likely to become an astronaut. But, uh, you know, he would have been the guy. And David admits that becoming an astronaut was something he'd always quietly dreamed about. I can't remember not fantasizing about it. In fact, he distinctly remembers being six years old and seeing his first photograph of the Earth taken from space. I very quickly realized this is never going to happen, but it's a fantasy that I allowed myself to indulge in. And then, about a decade ago, David heard that the Canadian Space Agency was recruiting, and he decided to attempt one more career change. It's as if time stopped and I, I kind of felt like I owed it to the little boy in me, to the six-year-old in me, to, to try, to at least, at least give it a shot. In 2016, David was chosen to become Canada's newest spaceman. His mission? To spend six months aboard the International Space Station, conducting experiments and research, while also living alongside astronauts from other countries, including Russia and the United States. David was scheduled to lift off in December 2018. But just a couple of months before his date with the stars, emergency, the failure of the booster. The crew ahead of him were forced to abort their mission after that failed launch. Fortunately, it took just a few weeks for Russian investigators to determine the source of the problem a faulty sensor that was damaged when the rocket was assembled. 
thankfully, the engineers around the world have been working very hard to make sure that we fit good to the bottom of the investigation of what happened in the previous launch. David admitted he was nervous. I mean, how could he not be? But he trained for this, and he said it was worth the risk. As a doctor and an engineer, he had a long list of experiments that he planned to conduct aboard the space station. For me in particular, is anything that has to do with remote care medicine, uh, because uh, I used to work as a, you know, a lonely doc in a little village up north, and I know very well that anything that we can kind of come up with to improve uh, healthcare in any isolated remote environment such as space uh, can be helpful back on Earth to people that live in remote communities as well. And David told me that perhaps just as important as those experiments is the power that space exploration has to teach us about ourselves. There's something innate to the space world that makes us take a, a couple steps back and it's in your face. When you see this one planet floating in the middle of deadly vacuum of space, you cannot help but feel like you are more than a Canadian or an American or a Russian. You are a human. You're an Earthling. And we're all in it. This is our spacecraft. That's it. That's the only one we have. It's beautiful. It's fragile. We've got to take care of it. Now, maybe this is just the cynical news reporter in me, but as David was describing the power of space to unite mankind, I kept thinking about how the reality outside this training facility and the space program is a little different. Reheating Cold War tensions, Russian President Vladimir Putin calling out the United States during his State of the Union address. Well, the White House issuing more sanctions against Russian oligarchs, government officials, and companies for their roles in promoting Russia's, quote, malign activities. Since Russia's annexation of Crimea in 2014, Canada, the United States, and their allies have leveled a slew of sanctions against various sectors of Russia's economy, including banking, media, retail, even fast food chains like McDonald's were forced to close their Russian restaurants in Crimea. But even as tensions rise, one Russian industry has remained remarkably unscathed. Moscow's multi-billion dollar space program. Not only have Western countries not sanctioned Russia's space industry, but NASA and the Canadian Space Agency pay the Russians tens of billions of dollars just to reserve a single seat aboard the Soyuz rocket, their ticket to the space station. Canada, the U.S., and a host of European countries all rely on the Russians. And they have ever since NASA cancelled its space shuttle program back in 2011. A decision by the U.S. government that was prompted in part by disaster. Flight controllers are continuing to stand by to regain communications with the spacecraft. The U.S. Space Shuttle Columbia was heading home on February the 1st, 2003. But when it re-entered the Earth's atmosphere, the shuttle disintegrated. NASA called a press conference and announced that all seven crew members were killed. This is indeed a tragic day for the NASA family, for the families of the astronauts who flew on STS-107, and likewise tragic for the nation. After that, the U.S. government decided to ground its space program. 
And for the past several years, Russia has been pretty much the only game in town, the one country offering rides to the International Space Station. And an interesting byproduct of all of that has been that perhaps more than ever, space exploration has become this rare example of geopolitical cooperation. While analysts and media commentators were warning about the rise of a new Cold War between Russia and the West, Canadian astronaut David Saint-Jacques was preparing to launch into space, literally shoulder to shoulder, with his American and Russian counterparts. David's crewmates aboard the Soyuz rocket are American astronaut Anne McLean and their Russian commander, Oleg Kononenko. The Russian, Kononenko, told me that no matter what's happening in the political arena, in the space industry, we are cooperating, achieving goals together, he said. I mean, we spent, you know, hundreds of hours together uh, fighting <laughs> really, really bad situations in these simulators. So we kind of know each other very well, the crew, it, it makes us brothers and sisters in arms. We often, in our jobs, when we talk about Russia, we talk mm. about the political tensions uh, between Russia and the West. And then here we are with a Canadian, an American, and a Russian astronaut all packed into the Soyuz. Yeah. What, does, does the, but does the outside political tension ever factor into the calculus for you when you're, when you're doing this? You know, I think we, we, never, we can't ignore politics and the tensions. It's just that's the reality. Uh, but no, it doesn't come into play. And maybe it gets to go the other way around. We build, I know very well this Russian guy and this American lady, and we are best friends and we trust each other's lives uh, uh, in each other. So that is reverse. That influences the way we perceive politics. And I think we were proud to represent, we're like an example of when we decide to work together and manage to find ways to work together despite the tensions, despite the differences, when we manage to get over that and get sit down and work together on a common goal, wow, it's unbelievable what we can achieve. So I think uh, space exploration is a great example for humanity. It's like a reminder that there is hope. It, when we do find a way to resolve our differences and sit down and work together, it works beautifully, and we achieve amazing results. So I'll admit that was a pretty good speech. And I'll also admit that by this point, I'm developing a bit of a man crush on David St. Jacques. But I also worry that based on what I've been reading and hearing lately, this space utopia that David is describing may not be built to last. Tonight, new concerns inside the U.S. defense community over a Russian military satellite exhibiting some very strange behavior. The Space Force is preparing for liftoff. Vice President Mike Pence announcing a new branch of the U.S. military. For one thing, space is becoming increasingly militarized. The White House is calling for the creation of a military space force to counter what it says are growing threats from China and Russia which are fast developing new technology to target American satellites. When it comes to defending America, it is not enough to merely have an American presence in space. We must have American dominance in space. So important. 
Donald Trump's proposed Space Force will be set up as a new organization within the U.S. Air Force. Trump's supporters love the idea. They literally chant Space Force at his rallies, while Trump's opponents have turned this Space Force into a punchline. Netflix has even announced a new comedy series with Steve Carell called Space Force, which will be entirely devoted to making fun of the idea. Carell will star in the series, which is described as a workplace comedy centered around the people tasked with creating a sixth branch of the armed services, Space Force. But as laughable as that idea may sound to some, the truth is that the U.S. military already has a huge presence in orbit. In part because there are around 5,000 satellites in orbit right now, according to the United Nations. They belong to a long list of different countries, and they're used for everything from watching TV to the GPS navigator in your car to predicting the weather. So they're hugely important. They're worth billions of dollars. And so countries naturally want to protect that investment with weapons in space. Uh, well, that's not new. Our next guest needs no introduction. Yes, I'm glad to be able to talk with you. What would you like to talk about? Who better to ask about the future of space than a man who spent his career making history in space? Canadian Commander Chris Hadfield. There's lots of rhetoric going on right now. A former astronaut, engineer, and Royal Canadian Air Force fighter pilot. I've been in the business long enough. I mean, I used to intercept Soviet bombers off the coast of North America as a fighter pilot with NORAD. So I have sort of a long view, and I, and I take any sort of um, panicky CNN situation room reporting with a grain of salt. Hadfield has flown two space shuttle missions and served as the first Canadian commander of the International Space Station. And during his stint aboard the ISS in 2012, he also became famous for using social media to provide a new window into life inside the space station, releasing videos of himself performing everyday tasks in zero gravity. And of course, who could forget his guitar? Everybody set? Here we go. One, two, three, four. This is ground control to Major Tom. You've really made the grave. And in addition to being a guitar-playing Canadian astronaut, Hadfield is also something of a history teacher who takes the long view of world events and exploration. And it's always been like technology moves a little forward and that allows us to go somewhere new. And, you know, we didn't get to New Zealand and, and Hawaii until like 800 years ago. And we didn't get to Antarctica until just a little over 100 years ago. And we didn't get to space until just a little over 50 years ago. And each of those was enabled by technology and imperiled and restricted by the static inertia of the way things were. And every single time, 
people asked, well, why, why would we ever go anywhere else? And why, why would we, you know, so what? Yeah, we've invented new technology, but so what? We still have problems here. Why would we do anything else? And it's, I mean, look at Columbus. He, he had a miserable time getting funding and had to take people who were, who were natural enemies to, to work together to try and defeat a common enemy. And that is ignorance and what lay beyond the horizon. And I see this, you know, we get all wrapped up in our own particular uh, 80 years of history because there's the only ones that really truly matter as a person. But I think the historical perspective helps put where we are right now, where when I was born, no one had ever flown in space. Spaceflight is younger than I am. All of this has happened in, you know, what doesn't sound like a very long time when you look back in the 1400s, but was just as long back then. And so it's incredibly new. But what's not new, he says, are weapons in space. The United States has had a space force since the 1980s as an extension of the three-dimensionality of the Air Force under Space Command and, and all of that. And Canada's been an active part in that um, for decades. And it's, it's served its purpose well. And we definitely need to think about it. Uh, how is that going to develop? If you have things of value in orbit around the world, then you want to be able to protect them. But something that is new to the world of space exploration has the potential to change the game. That is the promise of space tourism, and the race to make it a reality is well underway. I've always wanted to be an astronaut, and I got frustrated the fact that I couldn't go up on a NASA spaceship or a Russian spaceship, so decided to build a space line. Billionaires Richard Branson, Elon Musk, and Jeff Bezos have launched a new kind of space race. That's a big change. Unlike any we've seen before. The space industry is in great transition because of improvements in technology right now. If only governments can afford to build the vehicles that allow access to something, then that really defines the whole industry and also the sort of the philosophy of it. But if, if the technology gets good enough that the cost of access comes down to businesses or even private individuals, then it changes the whole landscape. And that's where we are in space access right now. NASA is now paying billions of dollars a year to private companies to carry their satellites into space, to ferry scientific instruments to the moon and deliver supplies to the International Space Station. Some of those funds used to go to Russia, but the rise of private space companies means that Western countries, Canada and the U.S., may no longer need to rely on the Russian space program to hitch a ride to the cosmos, and that could threaten their close relationship. But Hadfield says that these advances in technology are overwhelmingly positive. I see it as a real boon and a benefit that our technology is good enough now that the cost comes down low enough that right now as a private company you can buy a private launch and put something into space with no government money at all and we're almost to the point now where you can do that with people on board 2019 is widely expected to break new ground for space tourism with private companies such as jeff bezos's blue origin and Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic, now poised to start sending paying customers into space. So that dream of becoming an astronaut, going up into space, it's about to get a little closer. That is, assuming you've got around a quarter of a million dollars to spend on a ticket. But if not, don't worry. 
You can always follow Canadian astronaut David St. Jacques on Twitter. And liftoff. We have liftoff of Anne McLean, David St. Jacques, and Oleg Kononenko blasting through the Kazakh sky to the International Space Station. David's launch to the International Space Station in December was a success. And he's since been busy posting a ton of incredible photos and videos on social media. Just don't expect him to bust out the guitar. I don't play the guitar on, on Earth, so I don't know why I play the guitar in space. <laughs> For Curious Cast and Global News, this is Russia Rising, an investigative series from me, Jeff Semple, to unravel the mystery of today's Russia. If you liked what you heard, you can help spread the word by rating, reviewing, and subscribing for free now at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and every other app where you get your streaming audio. We can also be found at CuriousCast.ca. If you're just discovering this podcast now, I encourage you to go back to the beginning and find out how we got here. Next time, we'll pull out our crystal ball and try to predict Russia's future. Where is the country heading and who will be leading it? Part of Putin's uh, appeal to the young generation is that he's presided over an unprecedented economic boom in Russian history. And for all the problems that the country is going through and has been going through, a lot of young Russians feel like they are living in a nation that is uh, influential in global politics, which is more than you can say about what their parents remember from the 1990s and the era of Boris Yeltsin when Russia was falling to pieces economically, geographically, um, in terms of its health crisis, demographic crisis, all of the above. And who better to ask about Russia's future than the young people who are building it? Meet the Putin generation next time on Russia Rising. If you have a question or want to know more, follow me on Twitter at Jeff Semple GN or email me at RussiaRising at CuriousCast.ca and be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today. Russia Rising is written and hosted by me, Jeff Semple. Dila Velezquez is our story producer and sound design is by Rob Johnston. Thanks for listening and join us next time for Russia Rising. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.